following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Now, we are working at the moment through the book of Judges. And we've spent a good chunk of the year on this, on this book in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Uh, this morning we, we come to the second part of this book. The Judges is, is really a book of two parts. The first part is the stories of Israel's judges themselves. And we've worked our way through all of those judges, ending with Samson a couple of weeks ago. And it's the story of these cycles that Israel goes through, cycles of judgment and then deliverance, judgment, deliverance, judgment, deliverance, at the hands of all these other Canaanite nations. So that's the first section of the book, and it's the longest section. But then we get to the section that we're starting on today, the last five chapters. And this is a bit different. This section gives us snapshots of the ordinary lives of Israelites, individuals, families, clans, and tribes during the same period of time. So what's important about these two sections in Judges is that they overlap chronologically. Okay, Chapters 1 to 16 and then chapters 17 to 21, they cover the same period of time. And while this first section, chapters 1 to 16, it talks about this external crisis of faith that Israel was going through, all the international problems that they had with their neighbours, the wars that they waged, the judges themselves and how they fared. And then chapters 17 to 21 take us into the internal conflict and crisis of faith that's happening within Israel and how their struggle to remain faithful to God played itself out at an individual level, at a family level, and at a tribal level. It's sort of day-to-day life during the times of the judges. So that's important to keep in mind, that timeline-wise, there's a real overlap between the first and the second section. So this morning, Judges chapter 17, and uh, we read the story of this guy Micah and his family. Actually, one other thing, just about this section before we start on that. There's There's a particular verse that you'll hear in this chapter, and you'll hear it again a few times in this last section. And it's actually the verse that the whole book ends on. The narrator says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he saw fit. Or some translations say, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the refrain that this whole section hangs around. It's a bit of a funny phrase in some ways because it makes it sound like the big problem Israel had is they just didn't have a king. And if they'd only had a king, everything would have been okay. Whereas we know from the subsequent history of Israel that the kings didn't fare much better than the judges in terms of their faithfulness to God. But maybe Judges was written during the time of a godly king, like David or Solomon or, or Josiah. And from that perspective, the author may be saying, without some form of proper spiritual authority over the people of God to hold them together and call them back to the covenant and back to the law, the moral fiber of the nation is just going to disintegrate. And there'll be this rampant individualism where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. So that's that's kind of a motif that is going to crop up in these chapters. Let's read chapter 17 together, quite a short chapter. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son, 
to make an image overlaid with silver. So I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? He said, and, uh, he said I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and this young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So here's a guy called Micah. He's an Israelite man living in this area of Ephraim. Apparently, he's from quite a wealthy family because at some point he stole 13 kgs of silver from his mum. Most of us would just like to have 13 kgs of silver to start with, right? Apparently, his mum had at least that because he's, he stole that. But then he heard his mum utter this curse against the person who stole the silver, and Micah decided he didn't want to be under a curse. So he fronted up and brought the silver back and confessed to his crime. And his mother was so relieved to get the silver back that she turns around and blesses him. Said, the Lord bless you, my son. So there's a very hopeful start to this story. There's a crime that's confessed and forgiven and a curse that's turned into a blessing. It all sounds like it's going in the right direction, doesn't it? And then it all goes horribly wrong, as it so often does in Judges. Micah's mum takes the silver and she consecrates it to the Lord, but then straight away goes and gives it to a silversmith to make an idol. And the idol becomes Micah's own little personal shrine. Turns out he's got a whole little temple complex in his backyard. He's got a shrine. He's got these household gods. He's got an ephod, which is a priestly garment. And then he adds this lovely silver idol, very heavy silver idol, to his collection. And then finishes that process off by installing one of his sons as his own personal priest. And then we have this Levite who comes along. Now, this guy's really interesting. In the next chapter, this wandering Levite, we're going to find out that his name is Jonathan and that, in fact, he is Moses' grandson. Moses' grandson. What Moses' grandson is doing just wandering around the wilderness of Eph, he should be with the tabernacle. He should be worshipping God and mediating the presence of God where the tabernacle was in Shiloh. He's not there. He's just wandering around looking for some work wherever he can go. It's amazing. I mean, that alone, you look at the spiritual heritage of this guy, the giver of the law was his granddad, and how far he's come. And Micah makes a quick deal with him, come and be my priest over my personal household shrine and gods, and the Levite accepts it, obviously after a quick buck, just after financial security above anything else. And the story finishes there with Micah saying, now I know the Lord's going to bless me because I've got this Levite now who sort of gives authorization, apparently, to his practice of idolatry. And we end up with Moses' grandson installed as the backyard priest of Micah's household idols. It's a picture of one family that shows just how far Israel's fallen in this whole era of the judges. 
What I find amazing about this story, though, is how sincere Micah is. Micah and his mum. I mean, Micah's, they just don't recognize how far they've fallen. This is not like Israel just wandering off and making a golden calf two minutes after hearing the law of Moses. They just don't seem to even realize that what they're doing is, is problematic at all. Moses' mum seems to genuinely think that dedicating the silver to God and then giving it to a silversmith to make an idol, perfectly compatible. No problem with that. And Micah genuinely seems to think that the way God wants to be worshipped is through these household gods and silver idols. And then he genuinely seems to think at the end that having this Levite as his priest is finally going to give him some divine legitimation for what he's doing. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. It's amazing, isn't it, how sincere Micah is, and yet how sincerely wrong he is. The level of self-deception in this story is just stunning. That, that Micah and his mum have somehow drifted so far off course in terms of what the covenant required of them and what the law required of them, so far off course that they can equate the blessing of God with the practice of idolatry and not giving it a second, genuinely thinking that these things are compatible. They've just drifted so far away, they have no idea how spiritually misguided they are. And what's really scary is that we can do exactly the same thing. To some degree, we're all Micah, aren't we? This is a danger, I think, for every one of us. In the 1940s in Nazi Germany, there was a guy named Albert Speer, and he became Hitler's chief architect. Hitler made him the minister of armaments and war production, and he designed some spectacular buildings for the Nazi regime. He was put on trial, went through the Nuremberg trials, where he publicly confessed to his own participation and apologized for his participation in the persecution of Jews. Did 20 years in prison after that, and he went on to write an autobiography in which he reflected on the self-deception that he experienced as one of Hitler's right-hand men. At one point, his daughter wrote a letter to him and asked him in the letter how an intelligent man like him could possibly go along with Hitler. And he replied to her, and in his reply, he said this, you must recognize that at the age of 32, in my capacity as an architect, I had the most splendid assignments of which I could dream. Hitler said to your mother one day that her husband could design buildings the like of which had not been seen for 2,000 years. It had become a habit to do one's job without occupying oneself with what the neighbors were doing. My position as an architect and the magnificent projects on which I was engaged became indispensable to me. I swallowed all the rest, never giving it a thought. So there's an intelligent guy, a normal man, a talented architect, who completely succumbs to self-deception and just seems unaware of what he's actually participating in. Now, Albert Speer was an atheist, but there were plenty of Christians and churches that went along with the Nazi regime as well, churches that were organs of state propaganda at the time. I know those are extreme examples, but I think they reflect this reality that we are all in this danger of wandering down Micah's road. We're all in danger of bowing down to Micah's idols and becoming self-deceived. And the thing is, none of us think that we are. And that's the whole thing with self-deception. You don't think you're really in danger of it. We think that we have a pretty accurate view of ourselves and our life and other people and our world. We think we're pretty objective about that. But we are all vulnerable 
to the power of being self-deceived in our lives. Non-Christians as well as Christians. Just because you become a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that suddenly you are given this perfectly neutral view of the world. This perfectly unbiased, objective view where you see everything just as it is. We all live with a distorted perspective of reality. We all live still as fallen human beings. We may be redeemed, yes, but we still have, to some degree, a warped perspective of the world in which we live and our own lives. We all have logs in our own eyes that we just don't see. And this danger of self-deception is incredibly powerful. Micah was a devout follower of God and yet utterly self-deceived. And it's incredibly easy for us to fall into that same trap. So I want to suggest three things, three simple things that I think Micah could have done that might have helped him avoid this trap of self-deception that he drifted into. Three things that are just as relevant for us in our lives today. And they all revolve around the idea of community. Because I think at its heart, this is Micah's greatest problem, is that he was disconnected from the broader family of God. That he basically privatized his religion and operated as a spiritual island cut off from the life of Israel, the people of God, the common life that God had called them to. And when you do that, you are in the maximum danger of living a life of self-deception, even as a Christian. But I also want to define community in some particular ways, because I know we talk about community, it's very easy for it to be vague and abstract and generic. So I want to focus on three particular types of community, or three dimensions of community that I think are important for helping us avoid the danger of self-deception in the Christian life. The first is simply committing ourselves to spiritual community. Spiritual community. I want to read a quote by a guy called Barry Harvey, who talks about Christians in the church. He's talking in a North American context, but I think what he says is just as relevant to us today. There's some strong words in here, but I think we need to hear them. He says, A majority of those who continue to call themselves Christians retain a vague notion of religious identity, But their lives are distinctively secular, with the experience of God in worship and prayer not figuring very prominently in all they do. Increasingly, these nominal American Christians embrace the heady hedonism and narcissism of popular culture and do not see that this contradicts biblical faith. They regard religion as almost exclusively a private and inward matter, quite often as a form of therapy designed to make their lives more fulfilling. They see little or nothing wrong in regarding the church as simply another vendor of religious goods and services. Harsh words, hey? That's tough to hear. But it does ring true, I would say. There's some truth in that. And what he's identifying here is the way that the gods of our culture can creep into our lives and creep into our faith practices as Christians just the same way that Micah's idols did. And he's putting his finger on two things in particular, two forces at work in our culture. The force of individualism that tells us that the human being, the the individual human being, autonomous individual human being, is the highest form of authority that there is. And that my rights and my interests and my entitlements are to be protected above all else. And then the force of consumerism, which is that I find identity and meaning in my life through consuming products and services and experiences that are offered to me from a range of places. Those are two huge forces at work, two gods in our culture, and they're just like the gods that Micah absorbed into his home. They were the gods of the culture around him. He didn't just make it up. 
He didn't just decide to build a silver statue. These were the things that were being worshipped by the nations around Israel. And it was entirely natural for him to just assimilate them into his life, into his family, into his faith practice. We live in similar circumstances in a culture that has its own gods. Two of the biggies, individualism and consumerism. And it's so natural for us to assimilate those forces and powers and ways of thinking and being into our lives and then into our faith. And they they come to define us as Christians so that we end up living a very individualistic Christian life where our great emphasis is just on my own personal, private, inward relationship with God, not so much on community. Other people don't really have much of a stake in it. It's just about me and God. It's a product of our individualistic culture telling us what it means to be a Christian. And then consumerism, where when we do relate to the church, we see it primarily as a vendor of religious goods and services. I I love that expression. I don't love it, but I like the language. As a vendor of religious goods and services. The thing is, of course, we don't think we're doing that. We we, we would never think we were doing that or else we'd stop. This is the thing with self-deception is that just subtly, these forces of our culture get under the radar and they just start working in our lives, and they, uh, they influence the way that we approach and see the church. And while we'd never say that we approach the church as consumers, sometimes our actions can betray us. Because it's easy, isn't it, to come in on Sundays and consume the teaching, and consume the worship, and consume communion, and basically stay as religious spectators just stay on the sidelines stay as spectators not really participating not really contributing not really serving not really immersing ourselves in the life of this faith community whereas over time the whole idea of what we're doing here through teaching through worship through sharing in the lord's supper these are things that we trust god is using to transform our lives And make us different to the culture. So if all they're doing is making us into religious spectators, then I wonder whether a subtle form of consumerism has crept in that basically creates a spectator community rather than a spiritual community. Because a spiritual community is one where we are here to participate. We're here to be a church body, and we recognize that we're all part of the body of Christ. That's, that's the dominant biblical metaphor of the church, and everyone's part of the body, and we're a priesthood of believers. We're each priests to one another, and we're ministers to one another, and we've got responsibility for one another and to one another. And when we serve, we don't do it just to do a favor to someone, not just to do a favor to a ministry leader or just to help out or to fill a gap, but because we're genuinely trying to counter the consumerism that gets a grip in our own heart. And we're genuinely trying to work against the self-deception of our culture that wants to turn us into religious consumers and will do all it can to push us down that track. If we are going to combat some of that, that force and power and that idol, and I think we should call it an idol in our culture, we need to actively work against it through becoming participants, producers, not consumers, participants, not spectators in our church community. And it also means investing ourselves in relationships that work against the individualism of our culture. It's so easy to be spiritual islands. It's easy, I think, even in a church community to be a spiritual island. 
You can be part of the gathering. You may even attend a life group, but you can remain very closed to other people. Being a spiritual community means that we open our lives up to one That we try to develop relationships where we're really willing to be known by others. Where we're really willing to make an effort to know other people. Where we're willing to accept help and support. And willing to give help and support. That's a spiritual community. And that means that over time you develop some close proximity with a few people, maybe just one or two, who have the ability to say to you, if it's appropriate... I think you might be going down the road of Micah and his idols. Because who's honestly going to point that out to you if you're going that way? Who's going to say that to Micah? Apparently not his mum. Apparently not this Levite priest. Who is going to say to us that we're heading off course? If we, don't you want to know if you're going down that road? Wouldn't you want to know if you've got these blind spots, these huge, glaring, spiritual blind spots? I'm not saying it's everybody's right to go around pointing out these things in each other's lives, but as you develop relationship with people that is close enough, over time, there's trust and there's honesty and there's enough mutual respect that gently, graciously, you can have those kinds of conversations and say, I just see something here and I say it out of love and I say it to build you up not to tear you down and to gently put your finger on something that could be one of Micah's idols. Unless we're willing to submit ourselves to those kinds of relationships in a faith community, in a spiritual community, we are going to be really vulnerable to self-deception and we'll never think it's happening to us, but we'll end up one day doing exactly what Micah and his mother did. Spiritual community is a powerful antidote, I think, to self-deception in our lives. A second type of community that's important is scriptural community. Community focused around the scriptures. When Anna and I were, uh, when I was on sabbatical recently, we, we had a week at the Coromandel, me and Anna. And while we were there, lazing around one day, we got a visit from some Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. They tracked us down in the Coromandel. I don't know why they were going around this sleepy little town in the Coromandel from door to door, but they were. And so we got into a conversation with them, as you do, and it's pretty soon the conversation got onto Jesus. And I was just thinking about this as we read the Nicene Creed this morning, because Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God. And it's tricky because they will say, yes, 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 Jesus is the Son of God. Sounds orthodox. But they define that as he, he was created by God. He was given birth, in a sense, by God, not the eternal Son of God, as we affirmed in the Creed this morning. So it really does run against the grain of Christian orthodoxy. And, you know, they have their verses, and you can tell there's been training that's gone on, and they know the verses to go to that sound like Jesus was a created being, uh, and the, yes, he's the Son of God, but he was actually made by God. Now, I don't, I, please hear my heart, I don't say this out of any arrogance, but I was familiar enough with the scriptures that they were talking about, that I was able to have a conversation with them about it and point out some ways in which their interpretation of those passages was just wrong. And not even in complicated ways, just ways they were just adding words in that weren't even there in some cases. But I do worry because they go to the next house and the next house and the next house and you know those people that do invite them in or have a conversation with them, it sounds so convincing. It sounds so persuasive. And even as a Christian listening to that, it sounds quite normal. 
Sounds quite biblical. The only real antidote to that is to know your Bible. I don't have another one. That's the only solution, is to know your scriptures and to study and read the Bible, and not just on your own, but in community with others who can help you and teach you. The thing is, though, it's entirely possible for a whole community of people to be led astray, isn't it? I would say in some ways that's what's happened to the Jehovah's Witnesses. At the heart of it is just some really bad Bible interpretation. It's possible for you to be in a community where you just keep on perpetuating the same old stuff that may be quite wrong. And we do, as Paul warned, we gathered around us teachers that say what our itching ears want to hear. And even in groups, we can be guilty of doing this. That's why I think one of the great strengths of this particular church is that we're quite a diverse bunch. And I like that. I think we're living proof that the family of God is a pretty big tent. It's a pretty big table that we come to. We come from a range of denominations and traditions, but we hold together around the essential affirmations of our faith. We affirm them this morning in the creed. We affirm them in our statement of faith, which reflects the same biblical realities. But around that, there's wonderful space for dialogue, for difference, for loving and listening and learning and all that good stuff that should go along. We're not in the business of producing cookie-cutter Christians who just think and act exactly the same way on every single thing. So there's real benefit, I think, in some of the communities within our church in being in conversations with people who might think differently to you. And that's okay. Who might have a bit of a different perspective on some verse or on some view or on whatever it is that you hold. And just being open-minded enough to listen to that, contribute your thoughts, but then... Allow yourself to be shaped by that as well in community. It's good practice. A few years ago, there was a book that came out by Rob Bell called Love Wins. Some of you probably read it. It generated a lot of heat, which is ironic because it was about hell, and it was about heaven as well. And that was a book that kind of polarized a lot of people, I think, into different camps, some very pro, some very anti and within our church, I know some of you have read it, you have different perspectives on it. Personally, I, I found some stuff that I agreed with and some stuff that I, that I didn't agree with. But I had a number of conversations with you, people in the church over that time, some of whom were much more positive, some of whom were much more negative. And those conversations were so helpful, so helpful for me in shaping my own thoughts around that book, thinking through my own responses to the kinds of questions that Rob Bell was raising, rather than just dismissing it out of hand, we were able to have, I think, some really good dialogue, and we promoted a night at Kerry Baptist College where they had three panelists, each of whom had their own different view on it, uh, to talk about the book together and talk about strengths and weaknesses and what about this and pushing back on that, and that was really healthy. I don't think we need to fear that. I think it's really positive in a church community, and to be able to talk in ways that you're open to different views and different voices is one of the ways that we avoid this kind of self-deception where we keep just perpetuating the stuff that we've always thought because that, that's what we've always been taught or that's what my favorite Bible teacher or author or conference speaker or whatever has always told me, so I'm just going to keep on going along with this particular line. It's really healthy just to be in a context where you might hear some different views and you can learn from that, not just to, so you can argue against and push back and throw your verses back, but so that you can genuinely have dialogue and interaction around that and learn and be changed as well as contribute your own thoughts. And I think our church community just has a wonderfully unique way of facilitating that because we are quite theologically diverse. Unity in diversity 
It's a great way of moving against self-deception. And finally, a third type of community that I think can be really helpful is what I've called sacramental community. It might sound like a bit of a strange word, but let me explain this from the story of Micah. Micah's problem was not just that he made these idols and bowed down to these idols. That was a big problem, but it wasn't his only one. The other big thing that Micah did is not so easy to pick up from the text, but it was important in the life of Israel. The Micah's problem was that he worshipped God in the wrong place. It's easy to overlook that, but at the time, God had been very, very clear through the law. There is going to be a place that I designate within the promised land, a place called Shiloh, where the tabernacle will be. That's where the Ark of the Covenant will be. That's where the law is going to be kept. That's where the priests are supposed to minister, and that, Israel, is where you come to worship, Shiloh. So simply by privatizing his own religion, and just working these idols in his own backyard, Micah is a long way from what God has commanded. And I just wonder if he had committed himself, I don't even know whether Israel was doing this at the time, but if they had committed themselves to regularly gathering at Shiloh, you see them doing it in the book of Joshua, not in the book of Judges, but gathering at Shiloh to worship God, to hear the covenant renewed, to hear the law given again. I mean, don't you just want to yell out to Micah, just read Exodus. You know, like it's right there. It's the second of the Ten Commandments. Don't make graven images. But he wasn't participating. He didn't. It's not like he had the NIV he could look up on his iPhone. He would have had to go to Shiloh to be part of the gathered community of God, where he heard the law read, where he worshipped there, at the ta- That's where the priest was supposed to be too, by the way. That's where the Levite should have been, at Shiloh. But he's not doing that. He's not gathering there, so he's, he's in huge danger. He's really vulnerable here to this kind of self-deception that he indeed succumbs to. Now, yes, in the context of the whole biblical story, there is no longer a place where we have to come to worship. There's no particular place. We know that Jesus has come and Jesus himself said, Some people worship God on this mountain, some people on this mountain. The main thing is the Father is looking for worshippers who worship Him in what? Spirit and truth. Yeah, gathered around the person of Jesus, no longer a place. We can worship Jesus just as well and uh, confidently in a gym as much as in a cathedral. But even though there is no physical location where we have to worship anymore, Jesus has still given us something physical to worship him with, and that is the sacrament of communion. Now, I'm picking up here on what Travis was sharing last week, but I think we can sometimes undervalue communion and the power that it has in our gathered life. We can tack it on to the end of a service or or halfway through a service. We can just kind of make it an add-on, but I think it has tremendous power for our gathered life. I would argue that what Shiloh was for the Israelites, the Lord's table is. For us, it's the place where we go together to worship. We can worship God anywhere, yes, but as we gather, it's sort of like our worship rises and crescendos around this beautiful act of gathering at the Lord's table and being nourished again by His grace and His mercy and His sacrifice for us. Now, I know you can come in every week and you can go to the tables, you can take communion, you can walk out completely unchanged. I know that. There's no magic power. It's not a magic wafer. It's not going to make you holy 
or suddenly lift the veil on your own self-deception. But I would say that in the context of everything else we're talking about, as we commit ourselves to being a spiritual community, as we commit ourselves to being a scriptural community, then within that life, within that community, the sacrament of communion is so vital and so important and so powerful. It keeps us coming back to the cross. That's why we take it every week. It keeps us coming back to the cross of Christ. It keeps us centered on the crucified Messiah, Jesus. And I really think that if you're coming to the table with an open heart every Sunday, you can't drift too far away if you're keeping on coming back to the cross of Christ. This keeps our church cross-shaped, that we keep anchored and grounded in the death of Jesus for us, as the means of our salvation and the model of our sanctification, the self-giving love of Jesus. And communion is also the place where we come to examine ourselves. And this speaks right into the power of self-deception. When Paul describes communion in 1 Corinthians 11, Travis read the passage last week, he says, you come to the table, you examine yourself. In relation to the whole body of Christ, in relation to how things are in your soul with God. We examine ourselves. And this is a time, we're going to take communion in just a moment, this is a time and a place where we come honestly before God and we ask Him to shine the spotlight of His Spirit into our lives and identify any area where we might be deceiving ourselves, where our own heart is wicked and led astray. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Well, God can, and gently and graciously, he may just shine that searchlight into your heart, just reveal some way in which there is a huge spiritual blind spot you weren't even aware of. We center ourselves around the sacrifice of Jesus, and in response, God brings some illumination into our lives, brings a little bit of light into our own eyes. Just enough. He's not going to reveal everything. Let it overwhelm us. Just enough that we may be able to see some ways in which we have been self-deceived. Ways of living, ways of thinking, ways of acting. Even things that we thought God really was pleased with. Even ways in which we think we're really serving God and really worshipping God. That's where Micah was. And yet God may be wanting even this morning to put his finger on something and say, you know, that very thing, you think you're doing this for me. You think you're serving me with this. You think this is an act of worship. This is an act of of idolatry. And maybe painfully, God is wanting to highlight that in your life. Not to condemn you, not to judge you, please hear my heart, but so that he can offer more grace to save you from that self-deception so that you can see yourself rightly and so that you can start to take some corrective steps away from whatever it is that is pulling you down, the gods of our culture. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to imagine that we are Israel coming to Shiloh. Because that's what this is. We're gathering as the people of God. We're coming to the place that God has prescribed. We're hearing again the word of the Lord proclaimed. We're hearing again his great saving deeds recited and rehearsed. We're hearing again, as we read this morning, the great affirmations of our faith that have been handed down to us. And in faithful response to that, We are allowing God to open up our lives and put his finger on something that he may want to. 
And so we're praying the prayer of David this morning. Search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. It's quite a dangerous prayer to pray. That's quite risky because who knows, God may just answer it. But that's a bold prayer of a follower of Jesus who really wants to grow. And the fear of unmasking our own self-deception is outweighed by the opportunity to move forward into the things that God has for us in our life and have a greater and more honest view of ourselves before him. So let's pray as we enter into that time. Father, I, I know that it's so easy to look at Micah's story and feel like that's not us at all. But God, we're just we're challenged this morning that we're each in that place. There's things in our lives that are just blinding us. Things that we don't even see. God, sometimes it just feels hard enough to deal with the things we already see, let alone the things we're not even aware of yet. But Father, we, we just come honestly before you this morning and we ask you to, to reveal in our lives if there are some idols that we've been bowing down to, if there are some ways in which we're being led astray, if there are steps that we're taking that are just doing damage to our soul and we just don't don't see it we just don't know it we just acknowledge God we are weak and we're blind and we're so quick to point out the problems in other people's lives and we just miss this huge log in our own eyes oh God would you deal with us tenderly and gently this morning and graciously graciously search our heart and reveal to us, God, if there is any way in us that is offensive, any ways in which we're just traveling down a road that's not pleasing to you. Just bring it to our mind and bring it to our heart and show us what we can do about it. Show us how we can change and give us the strength of your spirit. Give us the courage of your spirit to act to do the thing that we need to do when you bring light to our eyes. We thank you, God, that you're just so full of grace. And even though our sin just abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Covers over all of our weaknesses. Thank you that from the table of the Lord, your grace just flows out into our lives. So we come and eat and drink now with glad and sincere hearts, but also open hearts to your searching and revealing work. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.